Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Going to get a little entertainment tonight. So the um, title of the talk is uh, The Issue of Othering. And I'd like to dedicate this talk to um, a friend and uh, neighbor uh, just down the block from, uh, from Jane and me uh, who passed away on Sunday, I think it was, um, a man named Bob Kaneko. Uh, Bob, um, I know we knew him for, oh, 30 plus years, 35 years. Bob and Kathy actually used to come here quite, quite regularly uh, to the community, but even though they haven't come for some time, still consider themselves part of our community. And uh, I've spent some time with Kathy uh, since Bob's passing. He, um, he, had, he went to a memorial service for somebody else who died on Sunday. And on his, he was 78. And uh, on his way back from the service, it seemed like he had a heart attack, fell, and um, and then somebody was was with him. Just who? Nobody was with him, going back to his car. But uh, somebody saw and turned around and was with him for those uh, last couple of hours and called nine one one. And he was surrounded with a lot of a lot of love. At the end. Uh, and Kathy and their daughter Lauren and his other um, children and family. It's it's a big shock when somebody goes very quickly, although in some ways, and he had a, a very beautiful, full life. Um, it's not a bad way to go when it's your turn to go, to just, uh, he was, it seemed like he went very quickly and he, he wasn't in pain, um, but they're still kind of processing it all. Uh, Bob was um, was born in Berkeley, um, and um, he was uh, a teacher at Berkeley High and was a school counselor for many years. Uh, very, very beloved, a very gentle and wise and loving presence, uh, very calming, centering uh, presence. Um, and he's, um, he was Japanese, uh, born in America, but of Japanese heritage. And uh, when he was four in 1942, he and his family um, went to the internment camps in California. And in fact, uh, it's, it turned out there, there's been some, uh, 
a, a lot of uh, artifacts that have recently uh, uh, been um, been made public from internment camps, and, and there was an, uh, an auction this last year, and the one picture that made the rounds both locally and all over was a picture of Bob when he was four or five. It's with a Wheaties. He's got Wheaties box uh, balloons coming out of him. And this was, everybody saw this picture and, uh, uh, and then somebody said, hey, that's, that's you, Bob, because it was in the family album, that same picture. And he, one of the, one of the lovely things is that he was able to, this year, uh, give a talk in, uh, at the uh, Berkeley uh, Library on being in an in internment camp and what that was like. And actually, for him, he said, you know, I was four and we were with our family so it didn't it didn't strike me uh that it was uh, it was not it, he was just playing with kids they tried to make it as as uh community oriented as possible and it didn't strike me how painful this was for my parents and for all the all the older people there uh, but he since became a kind of uh voice for what that is like to all of a sudden be taken from citizen to enemy. It's one of the most mm, one of the most shameful things that we've done in a history of a lot of shameful things in our country. Um, but uh, along with some very beautiful things in our country, of course. But can you imagine all of a sudden, oh, these people, your neighbors, are the enemy. And they obviously didn't do that with all the people of German descent or Italian descent in the war, but these were identifiable uh, by physical characteristics as being other. And it's tremendously painful. Um, and I have done some looking into what life was like. Bob gave a presentation and I saw the PowerPoint presentation and... Um, and um, so anyway, I wanted to, in Bob's honor and name, just talk about this capacity that humans have to separate and make different and make other. We are a tribal species. And when we feel safe with our tribe, then there's a natural tendency to see those who are not in my tribe as different and potentially a threat or dangerous or not as good. I'm not sharing with you anything you don't know. And it's not like I have um, 
answers, I just want to explore this uh, together with you because it's, it's coming up so much everywhere and it, is, it seems like it's the, it's the topic on everybody's mind along with this crazy election and who's going to run the country and things like that. Uh, but one thing I do want to say before we uh, we go to the modern um, the, the modern situation, something that is I find very fascinating about the cause and effect in the the Japanese internment. Um, Earl Warren, who was um, I think Attorney General of California. And he um, implemented the internment. Uh, FDR, um, I think, was responsible for giving the order, and there was some pressure to do it. But Earl Warren, who was a pretty good guy, became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was brought up in a family where um, I think he grew up in Bakersfield or something like that where um, Japanese were seen they kept to themselves and were seen very much as um, different and so it wasn't a big leap for him to see them as different and particularly given the order that he was about to implement uh, executed the order and with with uh, full knowledge and uh, conviction saying this is this is an appropriate thing to do one of the consequences of that was in later years he saw how awful this was and how shameful this was and felt really badly about what he had done in the interim, he rose to the level of uh, justice and then chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he was instrumental in the Brown versus Board of Education case that ended segregation. So you never know, and that's one reason why never to give up on the possibility of people waking up and becoming more conscious. There he was, out of his guilt and shame, um, leading the, the movement that was going to at least create a landmark for uh, the beginning of things uh, starting to become a bit more equitable, still a long way to go. Um, I just find that so interesting. Cause and effect, cause and effect. And as uh, Martin Luther King has quoted, the, the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. It might take a lot, long time, but that's the direction that it goes. And I wanted to um, 
share with you something that was uh, that I saw today in um, uh, on the internet. Maybe you took a look at it, and I'll re- just have it recorded so people listening at least can hear it. And you might not be able to see the the, the video clip, but um, you'll at least hear it. This was um, from a woman named Kathy Miller who is the uh, campaign manager for Ohio uh, for uh, the Trump campaign, uh, commenting on um, uh, all the, um, the violence lately in the cities, particularly North Carolina and Tulsa. And she, it's a, just, it's less than a minute. Um, she is no longer the campaign manager, by the way. But just to, uh, and I play this, I play it so that you can maybe see that people just have their own reality that makes sense to them as uninformed as it is, but it just makes sense to them. So, um, be warned. I don't think there was any racism until Obama got elected. That we never had problems like this. You know, I, I'm in the real estate industry. There's none. Now, you know, with the people with the guns and shooting up neighborhoods and not being responsible citizens, that's a big change. And I think that's the philosophy that Obama has perpetuated on America. And if you're black and you haven't been successful in the last 50 years, it's your own fault. I, I think that when we look at the last 50 years, where are we and why? We have three generations of all still having unwed babies, kids that don't go through high school. I mean, when do they take responsibility for how they live? I think it's due time, and I think that's good that Mr. Trump is pointing that out. So, just let that land for a few moments. And before, if you can, let it land with the... uh, the compassion of Kuan Yin, if that's possible, or with the wisdom of Jesus that says, forgive them, they know not what they do. It's, it's important, I think, to be able to um, take, hear that so you can understand somebody's deep confusion and ignorance and going around in a reality that just makes absolute sense to them.
That's a big one. Here we are in Berkeley. Of course, I know better, you know, or people listening, people listen to the talks from from all over. Wherever you're listening, if you're probably, if you're listening to a Dharma talk from Dharma Seed, you probably don't see things like Kathy Miller. Um, but many people do. And it's important to understand that people do. Lots of people do. And until we understand with some, mm, some compassionate awareness that sees, oh, this is what the Buddha talked about as ignorance. You know, the real villain is ignorance, is not seeing clearly. That can come from conditioning, just like Earl Warren, that can come from fear, that can come from shame and humiliation, that can come from any number of uh, life experiences. Um, The mind can be shaped in any way. That's what I keep on seeing. I mentioned that I was, I traveled in, in Europe. I was in Europe this, this summer, um, as I've been the last few summers, and going to Prague and Budapest and seeing, seeing what hatred and uh, oppression can do, whether it was Nazis or communist um, communist regime and uh, last year I went to Berlin and visited um, the German History Museum and seeing how I used to say how could that have happened and yet the mind can be shaped in any way the mind and the heart can be shaped in any way and in our response it can also be shaped to just create the other. And this is really what the Buddha was asking us to see through. To see through that separation. I, I quoted that uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, line here recently. I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. It might have even been last week, I forget, where he says... Um, uh, if only it were so simple, if only the, uh, there were evil people in the world and all we had to do is separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who's willing to destroy a piece of their own heart. We all have this in us. That's where it's so uh, important, I think, when you see yourself getting really angry, anybody get angry here? When you see yourself getting really angry, and here you are 
a Dharma practitioner, that's what makes it even harder. Oh my goodness, I'm a Dharma practitioner, and I feel like strangling this person. It's really, I think, important to see that with humility, to see, yep, I have it in me too, that I would actually want to hurt somebody, that I would actually wish them harm. That's humbling to see, and yet this can be a gift in deepening our compassion for others who do very crazy things, who hurt others, who are cruel, who are ignorant. And it's been uh, so interesting in these last few weeks, months, but really um, last month or two, uh, and uh, you probably uh, are familiar with Colin Kaepernick. Now, anybody who doesn't know who Colin Kaepernick is? Okay, Colin Kaepernick is the... That's really cool, that just one person, and I... Thank you, you just don't know, so no problem. Very good, okay. So, Colin Kaepernick a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, um, who, uh, when he decided this year he was not going to stand for the national anthem. And he sat, the first week in preseason, he sat, the first couple of weeks he sat down and nobody even saw. But the third week, when it was televised, they saw that he wasn't sitting down. And that was the first time they said, why aren't you standing for the national anthem? And then this very shy guy, really, who has not, who's been known for his reticence with the press over the last few years, was ready to speak his mind and his heart. And he has a a very conscious girlfriend, it seems, who's a journalist on the East Coast who's influencing him as well. And he said, I, don't, I can't stand for a flag in a country where people are so cruel and, and hurt each other and, uh, and do not stand for justice for all, particularly for black lives that, that matter and minorities. And there was an uproar death threats, and very, it became this big thing where Colin Kaepernick was the enemy. However, over these last few weeks, if you've been following it, how many people have been following it? Yeah. It's started this wave of... um, of different ways that uh, different that athletes are responding to the national anthem. This, the next week, he instead of just sitting down, he took a kneel because he didn't want to he didn't want to seem disrespectful to the military families, and he knows a lot of military people who you know he respects tremendously. He said, "This isn't about the the p- brave people who fight for our country, but for what." Uh, 
how they are not being served by what our country does. Um, and so he kneels out of respect, but doesn't stand up to the anthem. And now different teams are doing in their own way, having their own statements uh, and different athletes, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Steve Kerr, the coach of the, the Warriors, who are very respected and uh, people are saying, yes, I respect this. And it's, there's a movement now just from one guy who never was active before saying, I can't, I can't abide by this anymore. And now there is this wave of saying, things have to change. It takes courage to be the other when you don't have to be the other. When you're a star athlete that gets millions of dollars and endorsements, but to, to say, I'm not going to do this. So um, as we explore, just see, uh, just see what your internal reaction is. But one thing I wanted to, a couple of things I wanted to share, um, that it's so important to, as best we can, understand other people's realities that might be different from ours. And so I wanted to share particularly from Buddhist uh, Dharma practitioners who are of color and how sometimes uh, they don't feel as welcome as they would like. And this was from uh, a collection called Making the Invisible Visible um, that you can get online. People from from our local community uh, uh, were very involved in putting this together. And this was read at something called BuddhaFest. A few of these um, anecdotes were read at BuddhaFest that uh, Tara Brock put on in Washington, D.C., just so that we understand that it happens right here in the Buddhist community. And this has certainly been an issue in the last few years in our Buddhist community. How can we be more inclusive and truly welcoming and become more aware of how we might be um, creating uh, pain for people who are fellow practitioners. This is one. A friend of mine recently went to his first all-day session of meditation practice at a Dharma center on the East Coast. He was supposed to meet his buddy, longtime Dharma practitioner, at the door before sitting the day together. Unfortunately, on this particular day, the friend was sick and needed to cancel. So my friend entered the center alone. He was nervous, as most of us were when we first started out. While standing in line to enter, he noticed that the woman doing registration smiled at each participant ahead of him and checked their name off on a list. However, when his turn came, she looked at him and asked him his name three times and whether he was sure he was in the right place. 
even though he was on the pre-registered list. My friend felt unwelcome and left hurt, angry, and disappointed. When my friend walked in the door of that Dharma center and had the interaction I described above, he and the white woman registrar were not only acting as individuals, they were each acting as representatives of larger groups. This interaction happened between a representative of an institution that had been perceived as a place of refuge and a person coming for refuge who is perceived as a potentially threatening black man. The message given was that refuge is offered for some, but not for everyone. And then they did this in the Buddha Fest. There was a reading and then a bell to just take it in. Another. I have not practiced Buddhism for very long. That is to say, in the American Buddhism definition, I've, I've wanted to for a long time. I remember talking about meditation with a friend in college in 1983, but the only meditators we saw in North Dakota were white ones. When I moved to San Francisco four years ago, I lived down the street from a Zen center, but once again, I was daunted because of the whiteness. As a person of color, joining a mostly white group is always daunting, especially as meditation encourages one to touch and learn to expose one's essential self. On top of that, as a Vietnamese American, learning from white people teachings that I knew in my bones as having roots in my childhood in Vietnam was hard to work through. Though there are strong Vietnamese Buddhist communities in many temples within the Bay Area, because I've lost my native Vietnamese language, due to well-learned acculturation, I cannot attend these temples. This is ironic to me. For black folks, joining a predominantly white convert Buddhist Sangha entails an immigration, a cultural border crossing into a land that is unsupportive of black individuals and communities. These convert Sanghas are also thoroughly disconnected from the public concerns that members of black communities cannot help but bring with them given the position of African Americans in American racial hierarchy. My hope is that we will not view increasing diversity as a simple matter of assimilating African-Americans and other people of color into existing centers as they are. Rather, I hope that we will seek ways to make the Dharma available to African-American communities in an appropriate cultural and social idiom. And this is from a, a... teacher who's just graduated in the teacher training that that, uh, Kate was in, uh, Joanna Harper, and she's a person of color, Uh, she lives down in LA, about about the difference between a person of color practicing and uh, that, that white people might not understand. Question, how do you think the practice is different for people of color as opposed to the predominantly white Buddhist tradition in the West? 
is there a different quality to the meditation or are there different issues that emerge? And she says, yes, there are. Every teacher of color or person of color might see this differently, so I can only speak for now for how I'm witnessing it right now. But what are the ultimate truths that Buddhism is pointing to? They are impermanence, not self, and suffering. We're trying to liberate ourselves completely from suffering on the ultimate level, right? Freeing ourselves completely in realizing impermanence. Now when I talk to a group of Latinas or black women who've been oppressed in many ways at the workplace, witness the abuse of their children, or don't have enough money to feed their families, it's really hard to talk about ultimate truth when somebody is just trying to get by on the relative level. So often in POC communities, they want to talk about the on-the-ground relative, seeing that they're, that they're dealing with day-in and day-out, no, the on-the-ground relative seeing that they're dealing with day-in and day-out, and the oppression and the difficulties that they're facing in this country. So it's hard to say, oh, well, there's no difference and there's no I. It's hard to talk from that place when they're dealing with a different reality. <clears throat> so just some things to keep in mind, that everybody has their own reality. And to, to share a little bit from the difference in reality, say, that Kathy Miller has, uh, that people of color don't have, this is from an essay um, quite good called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. And she, she lists 50, I won't go through all of them, different ways that people who are not of color or white people don't realize the reality that people of color go through all the time. She says, I decided to try to work on myself at least by identifying some of the daily effects of white privilege in my life. And I'll just read some. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can avoid spending time with people whom I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust my kind or me. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and which I would want to live. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. When I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made it what it is. And just go on and on, 50 different ways. I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer letters without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, the poverty, or the illiteracy of my race. I can speak in public to a powerful male group without putting my race on trial. 
etc., etc. Just imagine, we don't, white people don't think about those things much, but those are constant realities, especially if you're a black man like uh, a fellow from North Carolina or the one from Tulsa or however many in the last few months and years. So, <clears throat> want to mention a couple of books in case you want to explore this further and then we can open up to a conversation. Um, this book by uh, Tanahisi Coates called Between the World and Me, a really powerful writer writing to his son, his teenage son, about things to keep in mind uh, and writing without pulling any punches, but in a very articulate, powerful way. If you want to understand perhaps the, the reality of, of a black man in our country, uh, I recommend this. Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates. And this is a book that uh, I think I've mentioned it here before um, that I've also found very illuminating called Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. This very well-meaning woman who has considered herself on the side of consciousness, seeing and learning more about her white privilege. And here's, uh, it's quite illuminating. Here's one example of how things are stacked against people of color. The whole book is filled with, with things like this, but one is the GI Bill. The GI Bill got people on their feet after the war, veterans, um, and it's quite illuminating. I might have shared some of this before. Though black GIs were technically eligible for the bill's benefits, in reality, our higher education, finance, and housing systems made it difficult, if not impossible, for African-American GIs to access them. On the education front, most colleges and universities used a quota system limiting the number of black students accepted each year. There were not enough black seats available to allow in the one million returning black GIs to allow in the one million returning black GIs. In addition, many black families already caught in a cycle of poverty from early discriminatory laws and policies needed their men to produce income, not go off to school. In the end, a mere 4% of black GIs were able to access the bill's offer of free education. Meanwhile, the bill allowed my father to go to law school without paying a dime, assured his white parents could retire comfortably with the aid of the Social Security. An earlier government program tilted heavily in favor of white people. And on the housing front, it was even worse. The National Housing appraisal system commonly referred to as 
redlining deemed skin color as much a valuation indicator as buildings condition. And so people were kept out of housing. And I'll just share with you this last piece. Between 1934 and 1962, the federal government underwrote $120 billion in new housing, less than 2% of which went to people of color. America's largest single investment in its people through an intertwined structure of housing and banking systems gave whites a lifestyle and financial boost that would accrue in the decades to come while driving blacks and other minority populations into a downward spiral. Discriminatory practices among colleges, universities, banks, and realtors created an impenetrable barrier to the GI Bill's promise, turning Americans' golden opportunity to right its racially imbalanced ship into an acceleration of its listing. From the perspective of Americans excluded from this massive leg-up policy, the GI Bill is one of the best examples of affirmative action for white people. On and on. So, it's really stacked against you-know-who. So, given that I've said enough, now we can... First, I just first uh, invite us all to go inside for a moment. And I'm sure you've been, if you've been looking at the news, mm, how to hold this in a way that doesn't tear you up or that gives you uh, a deeper kind of uh, Dharma practice, a practice that as the Buddha said, uh, doesn't add hate to hate, but can bring compassion, wisdom, holding in a way that we can bring a bit more consciousness, to our society. Not that you have any magic answers, but how can you hold this? How can you contribute to more consciousness around this major wound, the key wound in our culture, making someone different into other, into not as deserving, not as worthy. This is part of the human experience. How can we hold it in a way that not only sees through that, but can be a force for 
greater understanding and consciousness. And not necessarily to, again, come up with magic answers, but even to open up to the, the confusion or the, the pain that this all might stir up. And that's part of the healing in itself. Just holding it all. Okay, so I, I'd like us to, um, yeah, just uh, have a conversation. So anybody who would like to start, either with comment or mm, question. Yeah, the theme you've been talking about tonight, about accepting other people after, after you play this Kathy Davis tape, for example. I agree with you completely. It's obvious they you know, have their own reality and we need to accept that, and etc. But I just, the further point I'd like to make is that this acceptance doesn't mean not taking action. I mean, okay, Same we understand one. these people are different, they have their own reality, mm-hmm. and some are, their reality has an impact on the world that creates suffering. And we need to take steps. So it's not it's more than just saying, Okay, Kathy Davis is doing her thing and that's fine. Kathy Miller, yeah. Kathy Miller, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's fine. Mm-hmm. It means doing something about mm-hmm. not just Kathy Miller, but the whole, you know, thing that you're talking about. So and what comes to mind, I I agree. Like what would come to mind for you? Uh this is general enough, I don't have any specifics, but it means when you see injustices coming along, it's not to say, okay, this is perfectly fine. It means some kind of taking some kind of action. And about Kathy Miller, you know, I don't have anything specific. I'm just using her as the, uh, as the example that you brought up with. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like uh, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily... It can be a small but very courageous act of saying, this is not right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, what is this line by, um, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Desmond Tutu said, uh, if one remains silent in the face of aggression, one is, um, uh, is siding with the oppressor. There's a classic one from Mahatma Gandhi, which is, hate the deed and not the doer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Here. There's a oh, mic sorry. right behind you. And, and when you speak, put it on an angle, just like that, like an ice cream cone, <laughs> right next to your lips. Um, I, I understand the part about ignorance. You know, this they've been... Uh, if this is the mindset or this is your culture that you come from, but a lot of things in this country are institutionalized. I think of the 
the prison system in our country. Mm -hmm. It's one person saying, gee, this isn't right. Um, I mean, that takes legislate. We don't have a Congress that works. Anyway, I think it's very hard to be positive and feel you have a say in, in what's going on. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and, but institutions change when enough people... Well, wait, wait, I, I couldn't hear. Couldn't hear. What did you say? No, it, it's uh, very, very sad. I'm very ashamed of our country. I, uh, it's beyond things that I can can comprehend. I think where it's, where the, what's going on. Yeah. But uh, the 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 the, uh, the the hopeful thing is that change does happen over time. You know, look at how. Things that were unacceptable thirty years ago are taken for granted now. Whether it's you know, same-sex marriage or uh, women ha- having the right to have equal pay, even though they don't just yet, but it's the conventional wisdom has changed. In fact, uh, I love this study that I came across that you don't have to change everybody's mind. For things to change, that there's a, if you change seven percent of a population on a particular issue, that most people are sitting around saying, "What should I do? How should I think?" But when there is a a, sh- a shift of conventional wisdom, things can change rather quickly. I mean, look at even. As scary as it is, with climate change, 15 years ago, it was weirdos that were thinking that there was anything to this. Now it's, you know, the people who, who deny it are kind of, you know, what? Really? So uh, that's where every voice does count. And something like Colin Kaepernick, you know, can inspire others. But anyway, I don't, I don't want it to be just me. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Here, right over here. I was if we can yeah, put it right next to your lips. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if we can go back to Arnie's point about... Wait, um, again, a little louder. Yeah. Um, Arnie's point about Karen Miller. I think part of the difficulty is that uh, she's just a figure on a screen, so there's nothing to really interact with. We're only interacting with her words. I presume none of us will run into her, and we probably won't recognize or remember her it gets much trickier when you're actually dealing with people in person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I teach freshman comp classes at Cal, and moments like this in other forms show up all the time in the classroom, mm-hmm. in my students' writings. And that's a very... I mean, on the one hand, I'm in a position of power. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, that makes me much more cautious to act, especially since what I'm there to teach them is writing skills and not, you know how one ought to live or your more indoctrination. It's not that the two are ever completely separate, but that part of the deal of the classroom, so to speak, is that I don't enforce what I believe. And so it's a very difficult act of knowing how do you intervene, when do you not intervene, how do you act without being controlling, which often passes under the guise of care. Or How do you not, act without... Without so. being controlling, which often passes under the guise of care. Uh-huh. How do you 
act in the right without being self-righteous, which can often invalidate any kind of good that you do. And so it's a really, really tricky situation. Mm. And sometimes being in a position of power makes it even trickier to know what to do mm. rather than I'm in power now. I can finally enact the things that are right mm. with the world. Mm-hmm. So, so and let me ask you: in in your wiser moments, what do you? How do you navigate that? Um, the the example I had in mind was a student who was being incredibly racist and incredibly misogynistic in a paper. And when I addressed his comments, I did not address either at all. I dealt with. I mean, in a sense, racism is also bad. Thinking. It's and you is can, bad what? It's bad thinking. It's sort of mm-hmm. poor thinking skills, mm-hmm. poor critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. And so those were the skills that I diagnosed um, rather than trying to point out you're being racist, which I'm pretty sure he, he just, no, no student at Berkeley ever thinks that they're racist. And I, I don't think he could recognize that in himself. And to have me pointed out in such a strong way will not actually help. I think it would only make him more defensive. And so I try to work with his capacity to think in a much more neutral realm Mm -hmm. in hopes that if he's able to learn how to go through the discipline of thinking, at some point there might be enough emotional room to begin to look at himself. Mm -hmm. That I can't do very much for. So Mm -hmm. the ground I can prepare is a very different ground. Mm -hmm. But I hope it can it'll have an effect, even though I don't think I'll be around to see that effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. And, you know, I think each person has to be authentic in their own way. And for, for you, it, it would be controlling or maybe not appropriate to say, hey, that hurt, or that's, that, that's, that's not acceptable. For somebody else who that is their authentic reality... I think as, a, as somebody who's a practitioner, who's a Dharma practitioner, uh, sometimes very strong statements can be made if they're coming from goodwill. That's the difference. It's the energy behind it. If it's, what kind of a jerk are you? And, you know, get out of my class. And you're, then you just put up a barrier. But if the person can hear that you really care or that we're saying, wow, that really hurts. I want you to know, you might not realize it, but it really hurts some people when you say that or it hurts me when I, when I hear that. And you might just consider that. Maybe they never considered it before. So I think we each have to find out our own authentic response, but coming from a place of uh, not shaming, but just um, helping uh, lift somebody's consciousness a bit more. Wait, see. Is that on? I don't don't know if it's on. Oh, the battery. Oh. You you say the misogynist... uh, yeah. So let me re- just repeat that because uh, so the misogynist response made it particularly difficult because it would just reinforce that kind right. of separation. Oh, that uh, this is a woman, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
So that's where it takes courage. That's where it takes courage to just say what's true and live in that truth. But it's true. And, and for you, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have been appropriate for you. I'm not saying that would have been the right thing to do. We each, that's what I'm saying, we each have to find what feels right for us. And uh, thank you for, for teaching and, uh, and, and helping people become a bit more aware and awake. Yes. Okay, so it, it's time to go. And I just, since this is so in our face every day, um, just wanted to um, have us reflect on it as a, as a Dharma practice for ourselves. So, just feeling your caring or holding whatever has been stirred up by this or not. And may people who are receiving the hate and the ignorance, may they learn to take care of themselves and feel the support of others who care. May those who are out of ignorance causing harm, may they wake up and see the truth that we're not really different And thank you, Bob Kaneko, for your life. May all beings know true happiness and peace. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for your attention. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.